Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And, you know, we always call this a place where we're exploring our interior lives. I think today we're going to have to explain what's happening on the exterior of our lives as well. When we're talking about the panic and the anxiety and fear that has erupted because of the coronavirus. I want to introduce my co-host, Dr. Angela Ismirian. Hi, it's good to be here again. And Dr. Brian Goff. Hi, Brian. Hey, Sheila. It is fantastic to have you back from vacation. Thank you. It's good to be back. I think it's interesting that because this is a podcast and it's not time to any particular day, only going to say kind of where we're at in it, just to give a a basis for why people are beginning to feel the way they feel. The CDC has now advised that people who are elderly or have an underlying health condition or weakened immune system stock up on supplies, avoid crowds. They're telling them not to fly. They say everybody else should still just be vigilant and don't shake hands and don't, you know, keep social distance. In those communities where there's an outbreak, they have asked people to avoid gatherings, to avoid public gatherings, to allow workplaces to have people work from home and that people at all costs, if they can, avoid hospitals, nursing homes, facilities where the weakened immune systems and older people live. Public schools have closed in Washington. Oregon now has a state of emergency. And many people that I have talked with in the health world have said the only thing we really have to compare this with is the Spanish flu of 1918, which of course killed hundreds and thousands of people. So it's scary. It is you know, the external can be scary. And what I want to talk about is if we have all of this external chaos going on, how do we keep our internal calm, Mm -hmm. optimistic, and yet ready? Well, yeah, that's easy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's a difference between preparedness and anxiety, at least to me, in that preparedness has a, a certain amount of traction there are precautions that I should be, I should take. There are some things that I should be mindful of. And then I can take those precautions or I can alter my behavior. And it feels like there's a quality to anxiety where the, there's slippage. There's just like, there's nothing more to do. Mm. And now it's just worry. Yeah. And at least for me, you know, my, my mind goes to a lot of different places that my body may never have to go. Yeah, of course. <laughs> exactly. It's just kind of how our minds work. There's, there, our, our minds are tricky little uh, time travelers and transporters. You know, we can go to places in our mind and we can go to times in our mind. And just because we can think of them, uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to happen. But when you have those thoughts, you often have the emotional correlate with that thought, even though it's just a thought. Yeah. And so just being aware of the fact that everybody's anxieties are heightened and being aware of the fact that this is what my mind is telling me, is this helpful? Is there something here for me to do? Is there also a way that we can determine between when our brains start doing that, well, that's in the future, it hasn't yet happened, but this, me talking with Brian, is right now and it's real. Yeah. So testing your brain to determine, because I think in a state of real anxiety around this, you can begin to create scenarios for yourself where you're like, the world is falling apart. Well, the stock market was falling apart. So, (laughs) you know, um, but that idea that it it is so much more catastrophe than it actually is. I think our minds focus on the biggest risk to the exclusion of other things. So if we imagine that this is a potential really bad outcome for us, like, oh, what if I get coronavirus or what if I have to be quarantined for a couple of weeks that 
that casts a shadow on and I forget about being present to the person that's right with me or the person that I could call up on the phone or the work that I have to get done, right. et cetera, et cetera. The stuff that is in the here and now and the today and the certain gets eclipsed by the anxiety of the possible. Yeah, and I think about the what-if cycle that our brain kind of gives us will always take us down the negative pathway. Yeah. It's not what if everybody's okay. It's <laughs> what if... What if this goes away in April? Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which it yeah. might, which we have no idea, but we have to remind ourselves, like, what are my present moment? What are my five senses telling me? What am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I mm-hmm. feeling with my body? And then follow that. That's That will take you back to the present moment. What about, um, I mean, a therapist said this to me once when I was talking and it was when my daughter was going through a very difficult time with her health and I was telling her how I imagine the worst and, and, and what life would be like in the worst case scenario. And she said, can you imagine the best? Can you imagine yourself coping? Can you imagine yourself being prepared, going through all of this? And I was like, oh yeah, I guess we do have the ability to actually direct our brains into a more positive, affirmational type of imagining, right? Exactly. But how do we do that? I mean, for me, it was a real practice to catch myself with the negative spinning thoughts and go, okay, now you're going to replace this with something else. Right. Well, and even just the term that you used, spinning, relates back to that idea that I had about traction, where your anxious thoughts lose a sense of productivity. Yeah. Whereas if you're having a thought, what if I do have to go into quarantine? What if I do get sick? It isn't just, oh my God, what if I, it's like, okay, well, what will I do? What will I need? Um, how can I stay engaged? What can I what can I get done from home? And some of that imagining helps you realize like, okay, if this does happen, I can still engage in meaningful things. I can still do the stuff that's important to me. I can still stay connected to other people. Uh, when was it? Maybe about a year ago. I got the chicken pox. I had to stay home. I had to be sort of self-quarantined from people. I'm sure it's complicated by the fact that I didn't feel good at all. I felt really miserable, but it was so strange. The food choices that I made kind of went out the window. Any sort of productive activity went out the window. I had to be at home by myself, but that didn't mean that I couldn't Skype people or call people, but did I? No. (laughs) So you stayed in your pajama and binged Netflix? Yeah, and, Uh and put an ice pack on my head because of the sores that, hurt so much. Uh, And I'm sure some of that was pain and feeling miserable, but it was this idea of the shiniest object to look at was that I was sick and I had these sores on me as opposed to some of the other stuff about, well, there's actually some things that I could do that keep me engaged in my day-to-day life and actually keep the ball sort of rolling for me. Totally. I'm telling friends, like, please turn off the news. The news, the news, all you need to do is check your local county health website or- you know, the World Health Organization website, which is all fact-based. And then you have the news about coronavirus that you need for the day. You don't need to stay on television 24 hours a day. No. Yeah. And, and, it, and it really does amp people's sense of impending doom because that's what TV wants you to do is keep watching. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that binging will just continue the what-if cycle, the spinning out of control instead of sticking with that preparedness like let's just focus on the facts what do I need to be prepared what are the resources I need and then how do I get back to my life Mm -hmm. 
So I have been particularly interested and in, in my heart goes out to people who already have underlying compulsions around hygiene, like what yeah. this must do to them to now have everybody freaking out around Purell, right? Yeah. And uh, people who have concerns about their medical conditions that are unwarranted or, or not fact-based. Right. If you have already had that high degree of anxiety, but found a coping mechanism to deal with it. I wonder if you have some advice for people who already deal with obsessive compulsive disorder at a time of such heightened anxiety and panic. Yeah. So obviously it's a grave concern because uh, there's all this evidence on television, in the media, and rightfully so, some of it, that there are precautions that people are having to take and things are riskier than usual. When we greeted each other, we sort of did this like no hands hug sort of thing <laughs> uh, that that is going to exacerbate things. But to my mind, it may be helpful for people who lean towards anxiety and uh, certainly concerns about infection and germs and so forth to, to not hang on to the idea of is this true or not, but is this helpful? Mm. Is there something for me to do that is a reasonable thing for me to do? next. And if there is, then go ahead and do that. And, and I think in some ways, like if I said, is it possible that I'm going to get coronavirus this week? Yes, that actually is. And, and, and we could go back and forth as to whether, you know, what the probability is mm -hmm. or uh, whether that's true or not. But then for me to say, okay, well, in light of the fact that there is a risk, what makes sense for me to do? what is helpful for me. I have been washing my hands like a madman. I have been washing my hands and being conscious of, you know, when I rode the elevator, it's like, oh, there's a button. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I can just like elbow that. Yeah, thing, right. You know? Exactly. And it was yeah. your keys. Right. Yeah. And just be a little more aware of washing my hands and being a little bit more aware of touching things that lots and lots of other people touch. That might be a really helpful thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think the thoughts that show up in the, in the head we can ask ourselves, is that an old thing? Is that a familiar old thing that mm -hmm. I tell myself all the time? Or is that in response to what's going on right now? And if it's a really old story, maybe it's like, uh, is that really helpful? Yeah. Angela, I also just um, was thinking about if people say, for instance, that one of your your behaviors was washing your hands and you got to a point where you were washing your hands for you know, two minutes or something, which is good for some people with OCD. And then they notice, oh, I'm standing here and I'm still washing my hands for four or five minutes. So just the noticing yeah. of how your particular behaviors are increasing can be interesting during this time. And like, oh, what are some of the strategies I learned to actually get me back down to 30 seconds, right? Of hand washing. Yeah. And it's going to go it's going to go back to what is helpful for me. And again, kind of like what Brian was saying, is this an old story? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the way that I like to gauge whether it's actually helpful or not, are those credible sources like the World Health Organization, CDC, they're recommending at this point, you know, washing your hands for 10 to 20 seconds. So if you're going up to four minutes, you're clearly going beyond what would actually be helpful. Right. And so that's the moment what I would say, is this my old story that's coming back up or is this actually going to be helping me in this 
uh, era of the coronavirus. I want to ask Brian, I know that we've talked before about exposure therapy for people with OCD, but you can't expose people to the coronavirus <laughs> to, to illustrate that it's not a threat. So how do you cope with this one? Wow, that's a good question. I don't think that the idea with exposure therapy is you expose the person to a legitimately dangerous threat. Right. You know, if I was afraid of dogs and I went and saw a therapist, particularly a therapist in the tradition of behavioral therapy, I'm probably going to be being exposed to a dog, maybe petting a dog, so forth. We're not just going to find some rabid dog somewhere and run the risk of me being bit. It's going to be a therapy dog. It's going to be a dog that doesn't reinforce my fear. Yeah. So I don't know that in the current state of things, the treatment to decrease the OCD or decrease the overshot behaviors, uh, the target of therapy, it's going to be more about like, like Angela was saying, what are the recommendations? How do I stay with those recommendations? And then as my thought says, well, am I sure I got under the nails? Am I sure that I got the back of my hands? Did I go up high enough on my wrists to sort of notice those thoughts and yeah. notice that, okay, now my mind is spinning. Yeah. I've done the recommended thing. Now these additional concerns are not helpful. Right. When I walked in here, there was a little Purell thing. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Got a little Purell. And I walked another 20 feet or so, and there was another Purell thing. And I thought, oh, another Purell thing. I was like, you know, <laughs> that, I think I'm good. You know, and, it, and it's that... It, it's that like what is what is reasonable and what is helpful yeah versus and i think for a lot of people they kind of aware uh, a lot of the time of like i would not be doing this to be healthy i would be doing this to allay my thoughts basically i would be doing this so that my thoughts would go away my right. thoughts about washing my hands and the problem is is that it doesn't you know i would wash my hands for 4 or 5 minutes and then not get sick that day and then perhaps conclude, see, washing my hands for four or five minutes is a good idea. Yeah. Maybe I got lucky. Maybe I should wash more. So one of the most powerful ways that we can reduce anxiety is to have this underlying sense of calm, the foundation that we can all bring ourselves back to when even when things are really kind of out of control in the external. Um, the way for me that has really been helpful is meditation. It just, it is one of the like, forcing ways to offload the spinning in my brain that I do regularly now. And it's very, very helpful mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with my daughter's illness and yeah. dealing with some of the un other unexpected things that come up. But other than meditation, can you talk about some of the techniques that people can use to be able to find that sense of calm? Do you have any suggestions for how people can develop more rituals that are calming? I, I'm glad that you mentioned mindfulness. Exercise comes to mind. And then I also think the idea of expanding the scope of what I'm thinking about so that I may have this health concern or I may have this concern about my investments because, of course, that's that's another concern that people are having right now as the stock market suffers and the economic impact of coronavirus fears. Once I've done the reasonable thing, once I've done the thing that that makes the most sense to do. It's like, there is room for me to do other things other than hit refresh on what the stocks are doing. Right. Yeah. Or <laughs> Googling how much food should I stock up at my house over and over again when you sort of realize like, well, I actually have quite a few canned goods and I would be fine for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You don't have to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. It's just, 
Yeah. yeah, do the reasonable thing. But then what else would I be doing if this coronavirus thing was not a concern? I have some other things that I need to be doing. I have some other things that I can be doing. I can be like watching some TV or listen to some music or read a book, participate in life, continue to participate in life. Yeah, I love exactly. that suggestion. And even though you can't participate if you're in one of those high risk groups now and you've been asked really avoid big crowds or something, you can still do things, you know. Go to dinner with one friend. Exactly. Maintain a nice social distance. Yeah. Get yeah. on the phone. Yeah. If you're somebody who's supposed to be staying away from large crowds, or maybe you're somebody who's sick and you're supposed to be staying away from everybody, Yeah. still stay connected. Uh, yeah. Technology works in our favor in this instance. And I think it's you create your own sense of normalcy. So if that's taken away from you, you'll put something into its place, whether that's, okay, if I have to quarantine or isolate myself, then maybe that's the moment where I call a family member every day at 10 a.m. or I go for that walk if I can. And so you create that sense of normalcy for yourself because I think when people fall out of that routine, that's when the anxiety increases or creeps back in or other thoughts or feelings that maybe aren't as welcome or not as helpful. And how often in those moments where we could be sticking something in that has nothing to do with the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, opening up the news app on our phone and seeing if there's any additional comment for any new outbreaks or any new cruise liners that are being held out of port or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't need a, a moment by moment count of how many people are being affected worldwide. I also just like, you know, to think about the kind of greater span that we talk about here, that life is actually more than just avoiding loss and avoiding bad things. It's so true. It's actually, life is often about how do we contemplate this existence while we're struggling? How are we as human beings? How are we going to get through this? What are we going to look at in terms of our legacy of what we were like during something like this? Are we going to grab the last 15 masks or or are we going to say, yeah, those are probably better for health workers. I do think just thinking about this on on a more philosophical level right now is also really, really important for people to do. A philosophical level, but an altruistic level as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, this is certainly the case when it comes to quarantining. I've heard some stories of people who are voluntarily quarantining, like they've been somewhere where somebody was sick and they're not sure how they're feeling and they've just decided I'm going to do this. And they're doing that not through the lens of fear, but through the lens of I'm taking care of my brother, you know, I'm taking my neighbor, my, the, the people around me. Right. Which kind of goes back to like your values and what's important to you. You have to go back to what is it? Altruism, love for your brother, staying connected. Mm -hmm. How do you reconnect to that true, you know, value? What's important to you? Who do you want to be? How do you want to live in the world? And I think that will kind of move you forward. I do too. The the other thing that I, I do want to talk about it is if you are a person who is on kind of mandatory quarantine, mm-hmm. ways to keep your psychological health intact during that point. And um, I read this great study about if it's a voluntary quarantine, people report quite good psychological health mm-hmm. because they feel as if they're doing something well for society. If they're forced to do it, the rates of psychological well-being plummet. And mm-hmm. talk about, of course, you know the reasons why, right? Sure. Yeah. It's the, it's that altruism piece yeah. of when I do this voluntarily, I see a greater good that comes from it as opposed to being the victim of my own quarantine. Yeah. Um, you're actually serving the public by being quarantined. Um, it's not really for your health benefit, but it's for the health benefit of others. It's also, though, the um, rate, and we're seeing it mostly in San Francisco and Seattle, 
where people have begun to be very cruel about the people who are suffering, that discrimination piece that you see kind of rise up. So can, can you talk about how, first of all, we should think about people who have this virus? Yeah, I, I think you go back to imagine if it was your mother, if it was your sister, if it was your brother, mm-hmm. and how would you treat them? How would you, how would you want to be treated if you were uh, suffering? And so I go back to like, really coming from a place of compassion and empathy. Somebody is suffering. Yeah. If they get more stigma, it only just isolates them and puts them in that corner. And then they feel like they can't reach out for help. And so you think about how can I keep myself safe and how do I make somebody else feel safe and welcome too? That's so fascinating to me. Isn't I don't it? really understand it because I was sitting here thinking, well, what judgment would we have if somebody had the flu? Like it's. But if you have something that I can catch... There is a distancing that almost occurs as a behavioral protection, right? Sure, but it feels grounded in fear as opposed to judgment. That's right. Did you guys have any other thoughts about coronavirus, how you're responding to it, or how you've seen other people respond that you think is either a great example of psychological well-being or perhaps a kind of bad example? I think that overstocking on resources is probably not the best way to handle it. And not 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 to put judgment out there. I only say that because you have to really focus in on who are the people who need it. Like the healthcare workers. If there's a last piece of mask in the in the store, more than likely somebody who is like the, the at-risk populations are the ones who need it the most right now. The older populations are people who maybe have their immune systems hindered in some way. And so I think about really staying informed about what these credible sources tell you to do mm-hmm. and then trying not to go the opposite extreme and overstocking on toilet paper or overstocking on Purell. Do what you need to do to feel safe. But if it ever feels like it's going to the opposite extreme, that's when I would pause, ask if it's helpful, check in with a friend, check in with somebody who you feel like is managing it well, and then seeing what do you think? Do you think this is necessary? Let's collaborate. I'm having a couple of thoughts. One is the the idea of being safe. I wonder if there is such a thing right now mm-hmm. that, that the people great. who get yeah. sick, did they do something wrong? Right. Um, or are we really just like, I'm, I'm trying to minimize my risk and I still may feel unsafe, but if I've done the reasonable things to minimize risk, then it's okay for me to stop there. Yeah. And then the other thought that I had was my heart goes out to people who get the flu right now. Right. <laughs> you know, it would be so easy to get over your skis about it if you start feeling like you've got a cough and you're starting to run a fever to be like, oh my God, this is it. I'm going to die. Or to go the other direction, like, ah, it's probably just the dumb flu. To kind of, again, try to sort through, like, what is the reasonable thing for me to do? I should probably go get this looked at. I should probably contact, you know, my, my doctor or medical center and say, look, I, I have these flu-like symptoms. I probably should come and get checked out. I think that's right. Yes. And what kind of precautions should I take when I show up? Because most of the time it's going, you know, it's, what do they say? It's usually the usual thing. That's why you call it the usual thing. Uh, and so it's probably the flu, but it also sort of makes sense right now yeah. to not make that assumption but then to not make the assumption that, well, because I've got these flu-like symptoms, I probably have coronavirus. Yeah. You know, with the stock market doing what it's doing and 
these things that, you know, you're hearing that, you know, in a, however much time, you know, 70% of us are going to be exposed to the yeah. coronavirus, that it is sort of easy to have your mind go to, well, this is like a zombie apocalypse. This is oh, like, totally, this is the end yeah. of, this is the end of civilization. Sure. You know, like yeah. we're, there's going to be like massive global economic collapse. I think and, a lot of people you know, are feeling that way. While that's imaginable, mm-hmm. <laughs> so is we get this quarantined and uh, the virus dies out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we have to remind folks that some people have already gotten it and gotten over it. And that is... Like, yes, the other folks have died, and I don't want to make light of that or just sure. push that off to the side. But some people are surviving. Well, yeah, most. And most people yeah. are surviving, and right? they're doing the research and tests to come up with the vaccine. And so we're quarantining so that we can hope we can figure it out by the time we get the vaccine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah the other pressure cooker really is just the um, amount of, of political tension there is right already as we're headed toward elections and seeing how the anxiety over politics is bleeding into the anxiety over coronavirus is fascinating to me because everyone wants someone to blame, right? Mm -hmm. When it's a virus, Mm -hmm. unless we find out that it was weaponized and came here because some other country did it. I don't think there's anyone we can blame. We can certainly talk about what's a responsible response, Mm -hmm. but there's no one to blame when things go wrong. I just keep wanting Americans, which are so good at their better nature when they want to be, to remember their better nature. Yeah. Thanks for listening and supporting Beyond Well. We would love a review on any place that you listen to podcasts, especially Spotify and iTunes. And um, we'll continue to bring you updates on this, especially if people begin really talking more about the psychological impact of the coronavirus. Thanks for being with us. Bye, 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 bye.